It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Let me invite your attention to Luke chapter 16. Luke, the 16th uh, chapter. As you're turning there, let me say to you, August the 3rd, we'll have a great, great definitive day in the life of Beach Haven Baptist Church. I'll be asking us to commit ourselves to evangelism. I want us to grow to the point where we share the gospel every day. And by August of 2020, I want us to have shared the gospel with every unchurched person in our metropolitan region. That's going to take a good bit of doing, but I do believe if we will mobilize as a massive force for the Lord, I think that we can do it. We're going to offer you some training as well. We want you to be a part of that. And we'll do that August the 10th, and then we'll have a, uh, a makeup date sometime later in the fall. I need one hour a month from you as well uh, to involve yourself in visitation outreach. And so we're going to ask you to be a part of that with one hour a month. And then I want to ask you to make a list of um, people who worry you spiritually. You know, we're not judges. We don't know the condition of someone's heart. Uh, but as we inspect fruit, which we can do, some of us are pretty pessimistic about some folks. And I want you to make a list of those that are 15 long, 15 lost people, and plead with God to save them, to reclaim them every day. Uh, with that spirit, I want to say to you that God uses ordinary people. And we must begin to see this work is not merely the purview of professional ministers. They should do it. They should lead the way and they should set the example. But ordinary Christians can make an enormous difference. And I want to call one of our young laymen up to come share with you about what he did in Baltimore with this kind of ministry. Daniel, come on up. Daniel participated with us in our mission trip. And I want you to give him a Beach Haven welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Isn't God good? I was hoping you weren't going to say amen because I wanted to say, can I get an amen? But I always wanted to do that. But, um, and I'm also going to go ahead and tell you that my shirt does not uh, tie into my testimony at all. Um, and nobody bought it for me. As, I'm not quite as cool as Mike. Uh, so so um, one of the uh, core lessons that I learned in Baltimore was to trust God in evangelism, uh, to trust his preparation, his timing, and the Holy Spirit, his spirit. So there's no way I could tell you the uh, whole story in a couple of minutes of how Dave and I had the honor of leading Oscar Cruz to Jesus. So here's a overview of what happened. First, the preparation. Oscar had recently been reading some stories out of the Bible, but he didn't know what the message of the Bible was. Um, and Dr. Mills has actually mentioned this, that this will happen sometimes, which is really neat. And uh, as, as you might think, that's really too good to be true almost, you know. Um, you don't get any more ripe than that. Um, and in Acts 8.30, uh, Dave actually, I have to give credit to Dave because he uh, brought this up right after it happened, that this is kind of like the um, Ethiopian eunuch, because, um, well, you'll see how the story goes, but 8, 8.30 says, So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said to him, Do you understand what you are reading? And um, I actually asked him basically that same question, and he said no, and that led straight into the gospel. 
Um, and secondly, timing. It was midday, and Oscar was working down the street, um, but he was waiting on a refrigerator to be delivered. And he was on a bench near us. And thirdly, the Holy Spirit used me to easily share the message of the gospel and essentially the whole Bible very quickly. We then prayed for him, and, uh, and he in turn spoke to God out loud and asked Jesus to uh, save him. And Acts 8.35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at the scripture, at this scripture, uh, preached Jesus to him. And some, some other scripture that ties into this and kind of supports this um, is Isaiah 30, verse 1. Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel but not of me, and who devise plans but not of my spirit. And also Psalm 37, verse 5, says, Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And then, of course, Proverbs 3, 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Oh, and the uh, refrigerator arrived just as we finished getting his contact information. Um, so my challenge to you is to trust God's preparation, his timing, and the Holy Spirit in evangelism. And I think the last thing I have to tell you is that doing evangelism in Baltimore awakened something in me, and you receive growth, joy, and passion by prayerfully and intentionally doing evangelism. Now you know why I love that young man and all the others that have come and shared with you during this time. He was spot on. He really was. One theme of the Gospel of Luke happens to be reversal. And the biblical doctrine of hell is something of a reversal as it's presented in the Gospel of Luke. Now, I've tried to advertise on uh, Facebook this week that I would preach on hell today. Uh, if uh, you have small children with you and feel there's a need for them to exit the service, that's fine. No problem with that. I will tell you that you need to think of the sermon this morning as less of a tent revival and more as a classroom is how I will approach it. Uh, most Sundays I will preach to where the little lambs can feed and feast. Um, today that won't be the case. I'll probably preach over their heads. Uh, and uh, I don't uh, necessarily mean to, but I, I do want you to know we don't intend to traumatize children uh, with this particular doctrine. Of course, they've got children's church today, but it may be best to communicate the doctrine of hell to your children one-on-one -on -one around the family table so you can answer questions and direct their thinking more so than in an environment like this. And so if you need to leave, that's perfectly fine. Uh, but having said that, the doctrine of hell is a mighty reversal. Uh, Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 20, illustrates some reversals. So if you'll turn back there with me for just a moment. Jesus said, blessed uh, are you poor, in verse 20, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. There's a reversal. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh in the kingdom. There's a reversal. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you, cast your out your name is evil for the Son of Man's sake, 
And here's the reversal. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did so to the prophets. But then verse 24, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. There's something of a reversal. A few pages over in Luke chapter 14, verse number 11, Jesus said here something with which you're probably familiar, and that is, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and who, he who humbles himself will be exalted. The Gospel of Luke promises a cosmic reversal. Everything that is evil that reigns and rules today shall be overthrown. And everything that's righteous that struggles and is about to expire will be exalted and strengthened. I think there's some things today that need to be reversed. When a school teacher can start off at $30,000 a year after uh, a four-year degree but an untested football player can fail to finish college and start at $8 million a year, someone needs to reverse something. Amen. When 30,000 people a minute around the world view pornography but neglect the Word of God, I think someone needs to reverse something. When the federal and some state governments protect the eggs of unborn eagles but refuse to protect unborn humans, someone needs to reverse something. When the Internal Revenue Service demands citizens keep meticulous records in the event of an audit but fails to keep two years worth of emails subject to a congressional investigation, someone needs to reverse something. When Americans slobber all over themselves, over celebrities, and yet fail to exalt Jesus with all their might, in just one hour a week, someone needs to reverse something. And when failed humans, when failed humans judge themselves worthy of eternal life, but fail to trust the cross alone, someone needs to reverse something. And the good news is, one day he's going to. Hell is such a place. Hell is a great reversal. And that's what Jesus taught in this text. And I want you to notice the enormous reversals that take place here. One is a reversal in clothing. Chapter 16, verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. Well, later, the scripture says that he died in verse 22, verse 23. And being in torments in hell, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm tormented in this flame. His clothing changed. He was clothed in the finest, most expensive clothing of his day, but in hell he's clothed in flame. There's a change in his diet. He fared sumptuously every day. That's a sophisticated way of saying he had a gourmet diet and feast at every meal. Now he's eating fire. Martin Luther said there's fire from his eyes, his ears, his mouth, every pore of his body. 
There is a reversal in his senses. The senses are vehicles God's given us to communicate pleasure. But what this man cries out in verse 24 is very instructive. He said, I am tormented in this flame. And he uses that word three times in this text. And so that which is to give him pleasure is now calculated in hell to give him pain. And then there's a reversal in his identity. You'll notice in the text, beginning in verse 20, there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate. The text mentions Lazarus, the poor man, three times in the text. This wealthy man is never mentioned by name. He's just called the rich man. Now, by the way, he did not go to hell because he was wealthy. Not at all. He indicates why he was going to hell because in verse 30, he mentions repentance and another theme of Luke, and that is why he perished, because he failed to repent. Then there's a change in his status. He's gone from having servants and ordering others around, an appropriate thing to do, but every one of his needs were met with great haste, great care, great zeal. But beginning in verse 25, he has to cry out for the poor man to come to him to cool his agony. Verse 24, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. He's still crying out for people to come serve him even when he's in hell. His disposition has not changed. And yet he is denied. He wants Lazarus to cross over to him. But Abraham says... In verse 26, And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Essentially, Abraham tells him something he has not heard in many, many years, and that is no. His status has changed, and then his concerns change. He's concerned during the day of his gourmet meals. He's concerned about his clothing. He's concerned about his wealth. He's not concerned about Lazarus. Lazarus was laid at his gate and sent his dogs out to lick his sores. But then his concerns change. Verse 27, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they come to this place of torment. All of a sudden, he is concerned about spiritual and eternal matters and the salvation of the soul. Whereas before, he was a strict materialist. He's now concerned about spiritual things, but there's no hope. There's no chance. It's too late. But he does think about his brothers and their spiritual well-being. Now, some have dismissed this text as reliable information on which to base the doctrine of hell, they say it's a parable. That would actually strengthen the case of it being historical and real. Parables came from ordinary life. Fishermen, farmers, other ordinary experiences of life. This text, if it's a parable then, describes Jesus' ordinary view in life. Just like farming, just like fishing, just like the other ordinary subjects of the other parables. And so if this is a parable, it doesn't weaken its historical nature and its realistic nature. It actually strengthens it. 
I don't think it's a parable. Uh, there are details here, such as the naming of Lazarus, that are not true of other parables. And then the people here would not have a view into hell as an ordinary event of life like they would farming and fishing. The subject of Jesus' other parables wouldn't have that at all. This apparently is something Jesus actually witnessed himself taking place. Hell calls for a reversal of several of our views. One view happens to be hell's essence. What Jesus teaches here calls for a reversal in our view of hell's essence, its nature. There was a Mexican-American evangelist in Texas, one of my favorite, by the name of Angel Martinez. He uh, grew up in San Antonio, came to Christ as a boy through vacation Bible school, and soon after, God called him to preach. And before he went into evangelism, he pastored an Anglo church. Well, he came from the Mexican culture of Texas where jalapenos are very popular. Have you ever been introduced to one of those firecrackers in, in your mouth? Well, he used to carry them in his pocket because the Anglos, where he would uh, go to their homes to eat, didn't eat jalapenos. And so he sat down at one table with the deacon uh, for one meal after church, and he pulled out a jalapeno from his pocket and placed it on his plate. And the deacon asked him for one. An angel tried to warn him off, but he wouldn't listen. He insisted on having a jalapeno with his meal. And for the first time in his life, he bit into a jalapeno and for 20 minutes hooped and hollered because the acid got all over his mouth and his tongue. And when he had cooled off, he sat down and he said, Brother Martinez, I knew that you were a hellfire brimstone preacher, but I didn't know you carried samples with you in your pocket. <laughs> Do you remember the first time you bit into a jalapeno? Now, if you prepare any for anyone, remove the seeds, please. That's painful. Can you imagine the first time you bit into a jalapeno or some other hot pepper, what if the acid were still in your mouth? I bit into one when I was 11 years old. I'll never forget it. That was more than 30 years ago, and I cannot imagine what it would be like today to still have the acid burning inside my mouth and my lips and tongue. And of course, you know what little kids do. They try to wipe it off and they start tearing up so they wipe their eyes and the acid gets in their eyes. Can you imagine if still the burn was only in your mouth? And beloved, what we're talking about here with hell is a judgment of the total person. And Jesus calculates his description of hell to communicate this pain and this essence. Jesus, in fact, is the primary source of information about hell. And Jesus describes hell as darkness, as in Matthew 8, 12, three times. Wailing and gnashing of teeth, seven times. Eternal, five times. And most often, Jesus described hell as a place of fire. He did it 12 times. Hell is a place that was created by God intentionally to be painful. To match his justice is what hell is. Now there's some questions that surface about hell with this uh, description in its essence. One, is hell literal? And usually what people mean is, is it material? Is it physical? Well, let me ask you to consider this. Think of some biblical events. Let's think about creation of the earth and man and woman. 
was creation spiritual or was it physical? It was both, wasn't it? What about the incarnation of Christ when Jesus came and was born in Bethlehem? Was that spiritual or was it physical? It was both. What about his resurrection? Was it just Jesus' spirit raised or was his body raised? Well, both. Well, then why would hell be anything different than spiritual and material, spiritual and physical? It appears in the scripture that God has a bias in favor of both. Think of some Bible verses then. Uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not fear him who kills the body only, but fear him who kills both soul and body in hell. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The scripture imagines eschatology, last things, those things on the other side of the grave, as being both spiritual and material. And why wouldn't it be? God is the one who created matter. Now, in the resurrected body of believers, they'll be like Jesus. They'll be glorified, imperishable, and incorruptible, but it is still material. I I think that there's a strong biblical case for that. The second question is, how can a place be darkness and fire at the same time. If it's fire, it would light up the place and expel the darkness. Most commentators uh, mention that objection when they talk about hell being metaphorical or figurative. Even some, even most, and I can't think of an exception, evangelical commentators. I wish that they would step out of their offices for a moment and study carols and go see a fireman or fire chief. Those who are our firemen know that you're trained to fight fires in darkness because fire can burn a material, it set off a plume of black smoke. If you have a ceiling, it will cover up the room. And so when they go into a building to fight a fire, they don't merely look for fire, they listen for it because sometimes it is obscured from their view. So it is entirely possible to have darkness and fire in the same Uh, vicinity. Not only that, but the truth is, is that uh, not only can fire burn some materials that would create a black smoke, but the hotter a fire is, the darker its flame. And you see this with the pilot light on your stove and hot water heater. When there's less oxygen available to a flame, its color darkens. And so it's entirely possible for there to be darkness and fire in the same vicinity. A third question, if hell is fire, wouldn't it consume what it burns? Well, that that makes sense ordinarily. But can you think of a biblical case where something was aflame and not consumed? The burning bush, Exodus chapter 3, verse 2. There it was set aflame, and that leads me to conclude, and I'm merely speculating here, and so don't take this too seriously, but I, I speculate that the flame of hell is the holiness of God unmitigated with his mercy and grace. I don't know. I'm speculating. But that's what happened with the burning bush. There is a fire available to God that does not consume. Another question is, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? If he were loved, certainly he'd let them all into heaven. How can a loving God then send anyone to hell? I want to propose to you, this is the wrong question. 
A sloppy, sentimental view of God will usually lead to that question. That was not the question or issue when Jesus was living. Their problem was not God forgiving people and admitting them into, or excuse me, their problem was not God judging and sending the lost to hell. Their problem was a God who would forgive anyone. And that's why Jesus' message was so stark. But do not forget that he who died for our sins and preached grace and the love of God and the fatherhood of God of all believers is the primary source of information about hell. Jesus' message was entirely complete. In fact, 27 to 37% of every gospel is given to God's wrath and fury and sin and his judgment. So really, that's the wrong question. The question is not, how could a loving God send anyone to hell? The question is, how could a holy God ever let anyone into heaven? You see, it does not stun me that God would send anyone to hell. What stuns me is that he would forgive anyone's sin. Because he does it at the expense of his son on the cross. That's what surprises me. That's what stuns me. G. Campbell Morgan made this statement that I think is very helpful. And I have modified it and updated and paraphrased the uh, language here. But I want to read this paragraph to you. And I think it will be a big help to you. God's wrath is safety or love for the universe. For example, prisons are for the safety of citizens. Hell is a safety measure for heaven. A state that cannot punish crime is doomed, and a God who tolerates evil is not good. Exclude God's wrath, and I'm insecure in the universe. But reveal to me a loving God who fulfills his threats, then I'm assured that he will not tolerate evil in heaven, but will destroy it for the good of his son and his children. A God who has no wrath against evil has no love either. You need to understand, there is a hell precisely because God is a God of love. And God in love is offering all humans the opportunity to repent and place faith in Christ. But if you insist on being victorious and stubborn and neglecting that love, you have forced God to make a choice. His design is for his son and his children to enjoy a kingdom without any moral pollution or filth that wounds and injures and saddens them. And so you've put God into a position where he makes that choice with your victory. Either he pollutes his son's kingdom and lets you into heaven unregenerate or he banishes you and lets his son have a kingdom of purity, and I got to, I've got to make it clear to you, you're losing that choice every time. God the Father dreams of a land free from impurity for his son, and he will have it. There is a hell precisely because God is a God of love. And so I've got to say to you, if you cared anything at all about Jesus, and you're not converted you're not saved, you wouldn't want to go to heaven if you cared about Jesus. You would fear that you would pollute and injure and wound he and his people. You would insist that God banish you because you care too much for Jesus and his people. Another question is, isn't hell a bit over the top? 
Is God killing flies with sledgehammers and is he punishing these small little sins with nuclear weapons? I mean, has he lost control and become abusive? Isn't it a bit too much? The first time an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life is mentioned is in a case where the Bible addresses two men fighting and one of them being her husband, a woman's husband, an expectant mother's husband, and the other being his assailant. The assailant injures the mother and injures her unborn child. So the Bible does directly address abortion in Exodus 21, 22 through 25. And the penalty that comes upon the assailant depends upon the harm that he's done. If he injures the woman's eye, his eye can be injured, but no more. If he injures her tooth, her to- his tooth can be injured to the same degree, but no more. If he causes the death of the mother or the death of the child, he is to suffer capital punishment. And then follows an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a burn for a burn, a wound for a wound, a life for a life. First mentioned in the, in the scripture. In other words, God is the first one that prohibited cruel and unusual punishment. If you injure a tooth, then his tooth could be injured, but you could not remove his eye. If he injured an eye, you could injure his eye, but you could not take his life, you see. In other words, the scripture teaches a principle against cruel and unusual punishment, or help me here, the punishment must fit the crime. That's biblical. Well, apply that to hell. If the punishment is hell, what does that say about the crime of rejecting the truth of Jesus Christ? Well, the hell was prepared for the devil and his angels, Jesus said in Matthew 25. You need to understand... The father is so insulted when someone rejects the truth of Jesus Christ that the only punishment that fits that crime is the one prepared for the devil and his angels. You need to understand and really take this seriously. If you're saying no to Jesus Christ, you have more in alignment with the satanic kingdom than you do Jesus Christ. The moment you say no to him, you're as satanic as any human on the planet. I don't mean to offend you or hurt your feelings or, or, or be, uh, to overstate the case. But you have to understand the father demands all the earth bow before his son. And he's really serious about this. He's very serious. So, no, it's not over the top. It fits the crime. The final question is, how painful is hell? Well, it's darkness, it's wailing, it's gnashing of teeth, it's eternal, it's as long as heaven. It's fire. How painful is hell? Hell is so painful, Jesus died to keep you from going there. That's how painful it is. And so there is hope for rescue. We need then to reverse how we view hell's essence. A second area, we need to reverse how we view religious people. Jesus began this whole series of parables, and it is a series of parables. In verse number 14, he's speaking to the Pharisees 
laymen who are intense and rigid religious leaders. They were celebrated and honored. Uh, they, they generally were not made fun of. They were actually considered the holy of the holiest. They were admired because of their rigid observance of their traditions, their religious traditions. And in verse 14, it said, Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things and derided him, Jesus. And so Jesus begins with a warning and then follows it with the story in verse number 19. The story of the rich man in hell. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is warning these rigid religious laymen of their destiny in hell. He's preaching to religious people. I was in East Texas a couple of springs ago, and we did some door-to-door evangelism near the church. I was with the pastor, and we knocked on the door and found a man home one afternoon. And we began to share with him about the revival and invite him. And he said, oh, I'm an ordained pastor. And I've always become a little leery of people who their first religious impulse is to announce their good works. They start boasting. It's usually naive and they don't mean to, but they start thinking of themselves and what they've done for the Lord instead of confessing Christ and his cross and resurrection. And so I listened for a moment. I asked him a question that I I try to ask every person I speak to. Let's imagine the worst thing in the world were to happen tonight and your heart was to stop beating and you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What do you think you'd tell him? Well, he boasted more and more of his works and said nothing of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, though he was an ordained pastor. And so I shared the gospel with him, like Jesus did Nicodemus. And when I was done, the man repented and placed faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and embraced the grace of God. And I had to concentrate for a while on the grace of God because he believed that he got and kept his salvation by his works. Ladies and gentlemen, Please never give any religious person a pass. No matter what denomination they're a part of. Now some people might complain and say, well you Baptists, you think you're the only ones going to heaven. Well I'm more narrow-minded than that. I don't think all the Baptists are going. (laughs) I know these jokers and I can tell you. And you may have met a Baptist somewhere along the line. I never have, but you may have met a Baptist who communicated to you that only Baptists are going to heaven. Uh, If that's the case, that he's not a good Baptist or she's not a good Baptist. We've never believed that. We've never taught that. That's not part of our preaching, teaching, our confessions of faith, anything. We believe any person who repents and places faith in Christ and trusts Christ alone, precisely as the Bible teaches, has a place in heaven. So I I expect to see many people there from different Christian denominations. I do. But ladies and gentlemen, I've got to insist this morning that Scripture is superior to tradition and the gospel of Christ is superior to human inventions and grace is superior to works and it's the plank on which we hope to float to glory. It is our only hope. 
And you've got to come to God His way on His terms, and that is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, no matter who you are or where you're from. There's not a Baptist way of salvation and a Presbyterian way of salvation and a Methodist way of salvation and a Catholic way of salvation and any more than there is a Baptist way of childbirth and a Methodist way of childbirth and a Presbyterian way of childbirth. There is one way to get into the world. There's one way to get into God's grace, and that's the bloodshed cross of Jesus Christ. That's our only hope. We've got to change how we view religious people. So give no one a pass. Billy Sunday said you could throw, you could throw a pitchfork into hell and hit a church member on every corner. And Billy Graham has said there are three mission fields in the world. There's the home mission field, the foreign mission field, and the church mission field. Reverse how we view religious people. Religion's not enough. We must have grace. But then reverse how we view Scripture's sufficiency. I want you to read here in verse 27. The rich man cried out, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, witness to them, evangelize them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He had more faith in a miracle than he did the Scripture to convince unbelievers of the gospel. But Abraham said in verse 31, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. This man in hell had more faith in a miracle to convince than the scripture to convince. And Abraham said, God will have none of it. Hey, you know what happened in John 11. Some of you have already accelerated your thinking there, where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And what was the response of the religious leaders when he was raised from the dead in John 11? Did did they all surrender? Did they all believe? No, they conspired to kill Jesus and Lazarus is what they did. Friends, listen to me carefully. If they will not tremble at the word, they will not trust in a miracle. The word of God is more powerful and persuasive than any miracle any of us could perform. And that is why Beach Haven Baptist Church will be known in the community as a gospel preaching, Bible teaching church that elevates the word of God. Because that's where the power for conversion is. More so than in a miracle. Scripture is sufficient for ministry. Then we need to reverse how we view personal evangelism. Most of the evangelism literature will tell you to be normal and natural and casual. And I've always laughed at that. I've thought, how in the world can you be normal, natural, and casual when you are scared to death to tell someone about Christ? Listen, if you're still nervous and tore up when you share the good news of Jesus Christ, welcome to the club. I still get nervous and tore up all the time too. But I'm not going to wait till I feel comfortable with it because that day will never come. I'm really not normal and casual. Now, most of the people I speak with think I am. But you have to understand, when you share the good news with someone, uh, they're so nervous and tore up, they don't notice how nervous and tore up you are. So what Satan will do is that he will magnify your nervousness and your awkwardness in order to paralyze you into silence. Don't let that happen. In fact, I will tell you, nervousness and awkwardness will be a great, great servant to you if it doesn't paralyze you into silence. It can make you pray more, (laughs) doesn't it? 
So it can make you pray more. It can make you depend on God. It also indicates how serious you are about this. So really, there are a lot of advantages to nervousness and awkwardness. I'm that way before every time I preach. I have to slow down my breathing and catch my breath. I'm that way before I witness. I've got to pray hard. I plead with God to help me. And I've been doing this a long time. And still, I've got to do that. And, and I will say to you, you probably will as well, but most of the evangelism literature has excluded what we read of in verse 27. Can you imagine the tone of voice of this rich man in hell pleading for his brothers? I, I really would be inappropriate if I were to read verse 27. I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they come to this place of torment. That's really not how this man is saying it, is he? Let's read it a little more appropriately. I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I five brothers that I may testify to them, lest they come to this place of torment. That's more appropriate, isn't it? Why? This man is burdened for his brothers. He's broken in his soul. He has what the old-timers used to call a burden for souls. In other words, he can't live with himself until they're converted, until they come to Christ. It breaks his heart. It moves upon him. In other words, he shares the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ who wept from Calvary, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and wept over Jerusalem a few chapters later. O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, you who slay the prophets, how often I've wanted to gather you as a, as a hen gathers her chicks. Let me say to you, you get a heart for people to come to Jesus Christ, and you come to the point where you can't stand it unless they come to Him, you'll find a way to get the gospel to them. It begins with the heart. And yet, I have to admit to you, there was more of a burden in hell, and is more of a burden in hell today for lost people than some of our churches. Five minutes in hell would cure that, William Booth said. L.R. Scarborough was the second president of uh, Southwestern Seminary, first evangelism professor in Christian history also. And he went to Baylor University and finished there and went for a law degree at Yale. He intended to be an attorney, but when he was three, his mother held him before God and prayed and asked God to make him a preacher. And those prayers caught up with him one day after, towards the end of his first year in Farnham Hall, there at uh, Yale University. L.R. Scarborough was reading this story in Luke 16. And he read where this man cried out for his five brothers. He cried out for his five brothers. And that impressed Dr. Scarborough. And he said that right there, he surrendered to the ministry to win souls to Christ and serve God. And since that day, he had been looking for that, that, five, that man's five brothers. I suspect somebody in hell today is wishing you would look for their brothers and their parents and their sisters, their loved ones. They can't. We must. Now let me ask you a question. What kind of chance are you willing to take today? 
you're somewhat skeptical of what Jesus has said in the text, what kind of chance are you willing to take? None of this is true. Let me use an analogy. Let's imagine that you were to travel to Hartsfield-Jackson Airport this afternoon to catch a flight, and you were assured that nine out of ten flights were going to take off and land safely, one out of ten would fail. There's a 10% chance that your flight will crash on takeoff or landing. Would you get on the plane? Ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you, somebody more reliable than Delta Airlines is speaking to you right now through the Word of God. He who has been on both sides of the grave has come to deliver the message to us that God is just and holy and pure, that He has bled for our sins, He's paid the penalty. If we'll repent and believe the gospel, he'll cancel every one of our sins, and hell will never be an issue again. But if we don't, it'll be nothing but the only issue we'll have to deal with. Father, I pray that friends today would say yes to the Lord Jesus. I pray they'd fling open the door of their lives and bow everything before him. Help them to come to know him and to surrender mightily and trust him fully in His grace. Help them not to work up virtue or righteousness. Help them to call on you for it to come down and to cancel their sins. Help them now to have the courage to say yes to the Lord and bow everything before Him. Now we're going to sing a song and when we do, I'm going to ask you to step out from where you are and make your way down the aisle. We'll have staff and members here at the front waiting for you to talk to you about your spiritual need. We want to give you all the help that you need today to say yes to Christ and to meet Him. Would you quickly stand? I'm going to finish my prayer. We're going to ask you to come. Quickly stand, and I'm going to pray. We're going to ask you to come. Father, do a neat work in hearts and lives. Gather all the repentance and faith possible here today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You come. Give me one piece.